Hello and welcome back to another episode of the DigiTalks podcast. Thank you for joining us. You've made it all the way to season two, so you deserve a little bit of a pat on the back. Today, I am joined by Andrew Sabatino. Andrew, thank you for joining me. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you're not familiar with Andy and uh, all the wonderful things he's done, I'll give you a bit of a rundown. Andrew is co-founder at Donor Republic, specialising in strategic fundraising plans, appeals, regular giving, digital, middle and major donor, corporate partnerships and gifts and wills. He is a past state and national winner of the Fundraising Institute of Australia's Fundraiser of the Year Award, as well as being nominated as a pro bono changemaker and fundraising and philanthropy changemaker. These are some pretty like big deals. Prior to Donor Republic, Andrew led Guide Dogs SA and NT to experience significant fundraising growth from one mil to nine mil over seven years. He also chaired the Guide Dogs Australia Fundraising Committee, overseeing an increase in revenue from 57 to 89 million in four years. Wow. Team effort that was actually, so it's not all me. That's a massive achievement for a fundraising effort. I was part of a special time in life where everything just worked well for myself and my team. So yeah. It was lovely. Have times changed? Things in fundraising are going well, actually. Yeah, despite all the doom and gloom, despite inflation, despite COVID, despite wars. <gasps> you said the C won't. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. We unfortunately we have had to talk about COVID far too much on this uh, on this podcast yeah. because it has really changed the way that we've had to work. Yes, yeah, it's, it's fair enough. And I, I'm like you. I try to avoid that the C word. I thought I could just get it out quickly. And then move on. It's out. All right. You said it. It's out there. And I don't have to be apprehensive now when I'm going to say it and when you're going to hear it. Um, but yeah, thanks for that kind introduction. It's so nice to be here. And um, congratulations on all your success with the podcast and all your work. Hey, it wouldn't exist without wonderful people like yourself. Now, give me a rundown on your career. How did you get into the philanthropic space? Yeah, so my mum worked in philanthropy her entire life. And at an early age, she asked me to volunteer at the Julia Farr Centre and Legal Aid. I don't know if you know those. Yeah. yeah. So Julia Farr Centre was quite confronting. Yes. As, as a young kid at school, I would go volunteer and help intellectually or physically disabled individuals. And so that was quite confronting. Mm. And so my mum had always taught me from an early age to, you know, give back, do the right thing. And no matter what was going on in my life, there was always someone else that probably needed more help than me. So it was great perspective. So when I finished university, I did marketing. I did a degree in marketing. I did a double degree, actually, marketing and management. Okay. And then I did a market research diploma. And then I did an advertising diploma. And so from that, I got a job at Coca-Cola. And to be honest, it wasn't overly fulfilling. Something was missing. Yeah, you know, there was only... You know, I was going in and representing Coke, which was lovely. It was, a, it was a big brand, but it was literally just walking in there and saying why we should pick Coke over Pepsi. And I'd come home at night with my eight bottles of two-litre Coke as my reward, <laughs> plus a little salary. And I thought, this there's something missing here for me. And so I moved to Sydney. I was working on the radio as well at the time at Fresh. And you know that, that was a non-for-profit and I really enjoyed that. It was a bit of soul to that, a yeah. bit of community feel. So when I moved to Sydney, I ended up working at an advertising agency which had some philanthropic clients. And I jumped at the chance and from that, I moved to London. I worked at a non-for-profit, Bernardo's Children's Charity. Oh, wow. 
Wow. And I handled all their fundraising there and had some success with the team there. And then after Bernardo's, I actually worked at an advertising agency that was specifically dedicated to the non-for-profit sector. And I didn't even know that existed. Yep. And it was, you know, I was quite envious because in between Bernardo's and this advertising gig, I actually worked at a commercial advertising agency, Saatchi and Saatchi. And I absolutely detested it. Really? I would work till 2 a.m. and get home at 3, fall asleep, get home like at 4, wake up at 5 or 6, come to work again. And I was working on corporate brands that I just did not appreciate. That's just not sustainable either, that lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, I was a lot younger then, but... It... but does that make it okay? Like, I always hear people talk about working yourself to the ground. It's fine because I'm younger, I'll do it now. I'm sorry, life is precious. What if you don't make it to later? Yeah, it's true. I probably didn't know better back then. Mm. Um, and I was just on the merry-go-round. But yeah, so I worked at agencies in Sydney, worked at agencies in London. Then from Sydney, I moved to London and I found this advertising agency that specialised in non-for-profits. And I thought, this is what I want for my life. After five years in London, moved back to Sydney and my wife did not like Sydney. It was just way too busy for her. She didn't like London. That's why we came back to Sydney. And so I said, well, I know a little old place. <laughs> Little old Adelaide. <laughs> Where my parents are from. <laughs> Let's go visit them for Christmas. And she hasn't left since. And so I got a job at Guide Dogs and was fortunate enough to implement all the learnings I had from Sydney and London into Guide Dogs. Thankfully, had some great success there, as you pointed out, with the, with the amazing team that I had. And after that, I thought, honestly, how much money can one charity have? I really wanted to help a lot more causes and I have this advertising background, I have this agency background, I have this craving. And so I met my business partner, Marcus, presenting at conferences and he was sharing his growth in his charity. I was sharing my growth in my charity and we decided to do something which was launching Donor Republic. I love and it. And now we have 150 charitable clients, 50 staff and working all over Australia and New Zealand, which feels great. Wow. Do you feel like coming back to Adelaide from Sydney and London they were leaps and bounds ahead of what we were doing here. Oh, absolutely. I find I mean, Sydney was ahead of Adelaide, yeah. absolutely. London was 10 times ahead of Sydney. So what I learned in 2006 to 2009, I'm still implementing now wow. for a lot of non-for-profits. They're just philanthropies in their bones, really. And they've got such a big workforce, as you know, it's on overdrive. So yeah, I, I, I do see that market, the American market, the Canadian market as being well advanced, which is why we decided to partner with some of those agencies as well at Donor Republic. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, who do you kind of look to as industry leaders and people that are really driving the philanthropic space? Yeah, so my mentors have been here in Australia, actually. Okay. Um, I had one mentor in the UK called Steve Andrews. He used to run one of the biggest agencies at the time called Whitewater. And he was so client-focused. He was so staff-focused. He wanted to take himself out of the picture, and it wasn't about him. And I found that quite inspirational. He was the most humble man, the most authentic man, and he really wanted a genuine connection with people. So that resonated with me. And he didn't, wasn't interested in the money. That's quite interesting because fundraising is very much money-focused, but it's also very much people-focused. So... If you combine those two things together, then you get this wonderful outcome. I'm really glad you said that because I feel like there's a kind of, not like a moral dilemma, but like we're fundraising, but we're also like, we're taking money to make money, kind of like some people that might not sit well. Yeah, I have that age-old argument every day. And mm. Dan, Dan Pallotta has the most amazing TED Talk. You know, I encourage your audience to look up, but it's literally about changing 
the language around investing in fundraising. Yeah. So okay. at, when I started at Guide Dogs, I think they spent 20 cents in the dollar, right? That went to fundraising. So someone donated a dollar, 20 cents went to admin and fundraising. And, you know, that increased over my time to 40 cents. Significant increase. Yeah. And so, you know, one would argue that I took an extra 20 cents and didn't send it to the guide dog program, but I invested it in marketing and fundraising. And so a lot of the time I had pressure that I was wasting money. But actually, if you look at the net result of that extra 20 cent investment in terms of what we were able to achieve on scale, it, it was profound. And so I won't name the names of two charities within Donor Republic, but I'll give you this example. Charity A has 20 cents in the dollar goes to admin. Charity B has 40 cents. Mm -hmm. So if I said to you, who would you like to donate to? One spends 80 cents on their cause, one spends 60 cents on their cause. What would you do? Oh, I guess someone uneducated, not knowing all of these background things, you're going to go charity A. Absolutely. Yeah. And then so if I say with 80 cents, charity A can feed 10 people, but with 60 cents, charity B can feed 20 people, what would you do? go with 20. Exactly. So yeah. that's the conversation with the extra money invested in I love that. sustainability, system structure, process, efficiency, partnerships. You can make the dollar work harder. That is essentially like, I don't know, this is what you do every day, but that's essentially how it needs to be marketed to consumers because I know so many people in particular, you know, I do really want to go into this, getting the younger generation to be more active in donations and things like that. If they don't know where their money's actually going, and I hear so many people say, well, is it actually going to the cause? That's 90% of your job. It is, yeah. Look, there's been a real shift in the market. So silent generation you know, 80 plus, they came from post-war, they came from religious backgrounds, they trusted non-for-profits. Yep. They weren't interested in having to feed back on where their money went. They just knew it would go where they needed it to go yep. or they didn't really care, you know, because there was no other competition around. Baby boomers, a bit more savvy, you know, a bit more, actually just let us know a little bit about where yeah. the money's going. So the notion of reporting back, you know, the notion of donor events, the notion of sending you updates and newsletters has come through. But then you have the silent generation saying, you're just wasting money. We don't need to know where the money goes. And so that's where segmentation is critical. Then you have the younger generation, which is like, I need to know exactly where my money is going <laughs> or you, Charity, are absolutely lying, you know, through your teeth. So th there's definitely been a shift, which is also known as a key principle in fundraising, tangibility. Mm. Now, where does my money go and what's the outcome? Yep. 100%. I find that so interesting. Tell me a little bit about how your team is structured at Donor Republic. What kind of roles and responsibilities are sitting with who and with where and what kind of hierarchy? Yeah, so there's myself and Marcus, the two uh, co-founders and directors. We basically split the agency 50-50. So I look after individual giving. It's direct mail, regular giving, middle donor, major donor, gift in wills, digital fundraising, and I have about, oh, I'd say, 15 in that team. And then I also manage the creative team. So creative director, art directors, copywriters, senior, junior, you name it, art workers, et cetera, et cetera. They come up with the creative. And then I also manage the finances. So I one finance manager, and then we outsource to an accounting firm to do the accounts payable, accounts receivable. So that's... I have Fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, the fun stuff. And, you know, I, I have a deep appreciation for the fun stuff now, given that we're responsible for a lot of heads, 50 yeah. um, in, in one agency and 25 in another. And so I manage three heads of department and then Marcus leads events and digital as well. And so all the events you kind of see out in the market, like the MS Readathon, um, 
Oxfam Trial Walker, Cancer Council's events. That's kind of all Donor Republic. He has a team of 25 there. And he also manages one person in marketing. And the marketing person does our LinkedIn posts, social media, conference sponsorships. So it's more like internal brand marketing as opposed to client marketing. Yeah. yeah. And if, in fact, we're not that good at client marketing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he also manages IT and uh, Marcus also manages IT and, you know, facilities and stuff like that. So Obviously, your clients come to you for a reason, but why is marketing the business not a priority? Well, I think we're fortunate really because we, Marcus and I, have been asked to present at conferences, you know, six or seven conferences a year on our stories. And we've been able to say, you know, I started at Guide Dogs when it was a $1 million organization and it grew to nine. And I think yeah. it's now in excess of that. We launched the social enterprise um, at the Adelaide Airport, a pet hotel, which would have taken the revenue up to 15, 20 million, whatever it is. I left at that point. So that's a really nice story. This is how I built that. I started with three people in my team and two were receptionists that got promoted into fundraising. <laughs> and so when I left Guide Dogs, there was a team of 18. Wow. And Guide Dogs Australia started with 40. When I left, it was a team of 82. So it's a really nice story to be able to demonstrate revenue generation, team leadership, impact. We had you know, minimal staff turnover in that, whereas when I took over the team, there was just turnover all the time, right? Yeah. So it was a whole approach. Marcus did the same. He did the same thing. He grew revenue at Cerebral Palsy Alliance from 11 million to 31. He grew his fundraising team, was able to invest in services. What we also did though, we weren't just heads of fundraising, we were the head of brand, fundraising and marketing. And so marketing involved consumer marketing. So to get more people to use white cane services, hearing services, adaptive technology, guide dogs, therapy dogs, pets as therapy dogs, yeah. autism dogs. So running the marketing plan and the fundraising plan together was amazing. And so when you present at conferences about your wins and the journey, I think work just came to us naturally. Yeah, we haven't, organically. We haven't needed to market. Even though I'm a marketer with a marketing degree, it's something that I'm probably not that good at. It's hard though. Like, and I think, you know, you and I have had conversations before as well. You want to stay humble and, you know, you don't want to always be like, look at me, look at me. And I think a lot of marketing can sometimes feel like that, particularly when you're marketing your own business. I know I certainly feel like that. But I think particularly in such a niche as fundraising, I think word of mouth is so incredibly valuable and the results speak for themselves. To be honest, being humble is an interesting balance for me. I'm someone that is quite honest and authentic and not afraid to say where I've done well and not afraid to say where I've done bad. And so <laughs> that doesn't come across overly humble at times because someone will say, you did really well there. I'm like, yeah, I did. And then others will go, oh gosh, he's a bit up himself. I've been thankful to have people come in my life that have been really honest with me to go, geez, you could learn on being a bit humble there, Andrew. <laughs> if you do something good, like own it. And I think so many of us, you know, like there's the old saying, someone compliments you on where, you, particularly the female, someone compliments you on what you're wearing. Your response is, oh, this old thing, or I just got this from, or, you know, it only cost me X. Why can't we just say thank you? Yeah, I look, we, we chatted offline earlier about tall poppy syndrome. So I think my photo was being splashed about on LinkedIn a bit. I was presenting at every fundraising conference there was. And, you know, you see a comment at a fundraising conference and, you know, you get five out of five and you feel awesome. And then you see a comment, bloody Andrew's everywhere, pimping himself out. And you let one comment just ruin you, you know, and then you're like, hang on, I'm bigger than this. I'm better Keyboard than this. Warriors. I don't need to. It doesn't matter what someone else says. I find that I say that to my kids now. It doesn't matter what that person says to you at school. 
It matters what you say about yourself. And so this comes back to also what we were talking about offline, which is your personal brand. Mm. Like just like a lot of commercial organizations don't spend enough time on their brand, just like a lot of non-for-profits don't spend a lot of time on their brand, I think us as individuals probably haven't grasped our own individual brand. No, definitely not. You know, and, and so what do we stand for? What are we about? You know, what are we good at? What are we not good at? And what are our values? Mm-hmm. And just be proud of that, really. Be who you are and just own it. And particularly in a marketing space, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to in future episodes. We'll have someone joining me who specifically talks about, she posted on LinkedIn the other day about how marketers are some of the worst people on LinkedIn. You can market other businesses. You're selling yourself as a marketing professional, but yet you are not authentic. Your language is off. You're not talking about the right things. And you want to sit there and say you're a marketer. Yeah, I think panic is real on LinkedIn. You know, so every time I put a post up, have I, have I tagged everybody? Have I thanked everybody? Have I spelt a word wrong? Have I said something wrong that'll offend someone? And I'm the type of person that, you know, I'm overly considerate person. So I ruminate on these things. But there is, there is a way to go, I think, on LinkedIn and, and marketing socially. As you know, mm-hmm. you've, you've got a business in it and so do I. Talk to me through the biggest changes you've seen in philanthropic marketing during your time, maybe even more specifically the last, let's say, three years. 100% digital for years has been an afterthought. And I suppose that's because of the amount of population in baby boomer and silent generation. Yeah. And they grew up with post. And, you know, they're not technically savvy. Mm. And so recently this emergence of digital has overtaken non-for-profits. Yeah. But what's happened is the non-for-profit sector doesn't have the skill and expertise like commercial sector. And so they're still sending out blanketed emails that aren't segmented. They're still doing social media posts that don't reflect brand or are trying to drive organic sales and they're not investing in pay. They don't understand best practice. And so there's been a rise of digital donation, but there hasn't been the skill set to support it. So that's the first thing. Yeah. And the second thing has been this um, strength-based fundraising. Moving away from the fly on the face, woe is me, poor kid, poor animal, vulnerability, guilting people into donating, into the positive messaging of what can occur. Now, pound for pound, in the dawn of time, what has been tested is the fly on the face will outstrip the happy face. Outstrip it. Ten to, well, three to one, two to one. You're going to raise more money, but what at what detriment to your brand and lifetime value, LTV? Yeah, I love that. You know, so so the emergence of strength-based fundraising has, has really taken a hold, as has digital. That's how you get people to repeat. And, you know, again, LTV, whether you're in fundraising or whether you're in e-commerce, we don't want someone to buy from us once. We want a customer for life. We want a donor for life. We want someone who feels so connected and so engaged with that particular cause that they're going to come back every single time. They're never going to question because you're communicating why. Yeah, you touch on an important aspect there, which is why. And so a lot of the work we've been doing in Donor Republic is emotional proposition development. And so what you do is you train guide dogs. And you say that all the time. But why do you do it? Mm. And so this links back to your branding. You know, what is it about you emotionally that connects to your donor or your customer or your audience? And so at the end of the day, when you give a donation or you buy something online, what I've been preaching is how do we make that customer or donor feel? 
during that process. Yeah. And if it's a receipt, so I gave a donation online the other day and they sent me a tax invoice attached to their system. And so that's a wonderful opportunity to portray an emotional and rational proposition back to me to avoid that cognitive dissonance of dropping out. Mm -hmm. I purchased some alcohol online or I purchased a t-shirt online. Thank you for your purchase, Andrew. I'm not bought into anything there. So I do think the sector in general has this opportunity to just work a bit harder. Yep. Understand what you stand for and let that kind of come through in your communication strategy. In particularly in aftercare, let's call it, people get lazy. They don't think about how can we make sure that experience was awesome. Like simple thing, adore beauty. When you buy a package from them and you get a package, even if you spend nothing, you just get one product, you always get like a little chocolate or like a little Tim Tam or something. I went to my girlfriend's last week and she had the little Tim Tam on her bench. And I said, oh, what did you get from Adore Beauty? That's that connection. That's that little thing that seems so minor, but I look forward to that. And that's what keeps me going back because I like the Tim Tams. (laughs) Hopefully they do vegan stuff as a proud vegan for 10 years, but it comes back to two important things there. Marketers, fundraisers, we've, we've been guilty of the car salesman. Just kind of just like sell that bloody car. And here are all the features and look how awesome it is. And, and then what happens when you drive the car home? Bye. Nothing. See you later. Don't get a receipt. Don't get a follow-up. Don't get a check-in. Don't get multi-channel mark. You know, just mm-hmm. don't get anything that's donor or customer-centric. And so I think, Nat, what's really frustrating is having run an agency for six years and now have two agencies, you feel, and you're probably the same, you feel like you say the same thing every day. Yeah. And it's like, take yourself out of the equation how does the customer feel? How does the owner feel? And and then people that hear that go, oh, they're just saying really basic stuff now. And it's like, yeah, that's because the market's not catching up with that. So that's the first part. The second part is based on your chocolates, which is the small things matter. Yeah. And if you have a lot of small things that have made you feel something, you know. Um, We're humans. We have feelings. I think that's what a lot of marketers forget. You know, look, I've noticed that with e-commerce agency. Mm. So I run a philanthropic agency, as you know. It's all about feelings. Believe it or not, a lot of non-for-profits aren't good at that, like medical researchers. Yeah. And we can't talk about feelings. We're a medical research organization. Okay, let's bring the emotion. Move into e-com nation, the other agency. There's no feelings. It's product sale, product features. I'm like, well, where's the story? Where's the brand? You know, why you? Over but that's why else? you're so valuable to that organization because I think particularly in e-commerce, which is so fast paced, you can sometimes forget to go, well, take the product or service out of it. What's what's someone feeling when they engage? What is the story? Yeah. And I love seeing directors and owners of businesses quiver when you ask them to get into their feelings. But we've been doing some split testing around a couple of things, actually. So product product sales on Ecom Nation uh, mm-hmm. clients know about us and no story and no charitable giving. And so no social awareness or just vlog products yep. versus a 50-50 split on and about us. Why did you start this company? What is it about your story? People connect with people. Mm-hmm. Which charity would you like to give 2% of your sales to? And then you see them flip out about that. That obviously resonates more than I just want to flog a product. Yep. That for me has also been a really big rise in how I've understood my place between transferring from Donor Republic to Ecom Nation. I'm kind of bringing the... The feelings. The feelings. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's funny because in my life, my past girlfriend used to call me Tin Man. 
<laughs> and here we are telling people to talk about their feelings. Yeah. How times change. How times change. But it's, I think it's, it's really important to have that balance because, you know, that was something that I really did want to talk to you about. How can, how do you go from the flogging product side of things, which essentially is e-commerce, to sitting down with charitable organizations and trying to work out how can we get the best outcome because you actually change people's lives. It's not, I'm just going to sell this t-shirt that I got from Alibaba and it's the same as everything else. These are real people and real outcomes. That was something I think I was going to struggle with. It's quite exhausting actually looking at so many heartfelt stories in the work that I do, particularly cancer. My mum passed away with cancer three years ago and I saw this story from a cancer charity and you know, it looked like my mum. It was the same cancer as my mum. triggering. It was really triggering. Then there was like a child with cancer. I just found myself stopped. Nah. I got home, hugged my kids. Uh, then, you know, dealing with the RSPCA and, uh, uh, you know. You'd see some stuff. You'd just see some stuff. And you're in that mode. So you need to protect yourself, Right. But then when you move to Ecom Nation, <laughs> and what I found is I get connected with the people that run the businesses. Yeah. What makes them tick? I find when I ask questions like, why did you start this business? Some of the kind of people in e-commerce don't ask those questions. No. And how do you want your customers to feel after you purchase that? No. What do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> and so I've been talking a lot about donor journeys, customer journeys. So when a donor gives... Uh, $30 a month to sponsor a puppy, mm -hmm. they get a series of communications throughout a year. Whether that's a lot or a little, you know, people can decide. When you purchase a product, you get your chocolate. What else do you get? What is the journey? I'm actually so surprised that e-commerce people don't consider this. But what So I've, few, so few. But what I've come to realize is they're product experts. They're not marketers. And so that's the value we're adding. I'm just trying to connect people with their values, their proposition, and how that would resonate with an audience. I kind of keep it really simple. I love that. Do you feel, going back to obviously the donor republic side of things, do you feel like you have to have really clear boundaries when it comes to the emotional side of things? Because otherwise, you know, you can get quite set off by some of the, the full-on things that you're exposed to. Yeah, I definitely do. <laughs> I was on a Zoom the other day and I was reviewing, critiquing some work and I, I kind of like swallowed so I was about to cry and I didn't just didn't want to cry in front of a client. And they're like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm all good. I'm all good. And so you just know to get up, go for a walk around the block, set the boundary. The other challenge I have is we're all a bunch of do-gooders. Yeah. We all want to do good. We're a bit martyr-like. And so, you know, Ecom Nation runs at a certain profit margin. And, you know, you can see my fingers here and the, and the, and the audience can't. And I'm not going to say the figure, but Donor Republic runs at another profit margin. Yeah. It's much smaller. They're different business models. Yeah, because charities want everything for nothing. Most of the time, yeah. not all the time. And we want to help everybody. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm trying to, and you know what it's like if someone wants to have a conversation, you're not going to go, oh, that was $200, by the way. Yeah. Every time you ring me, you know, I had a really interesting conversation with someone yesterday, actually, and was saying, you know, when, when you get the message saying, hey, can we catch up for a coffee or can I just pick your brain? Where do you draw the line in saying, okay, no more picking my brain? Because at the end of the day, this is my IP. This is my 10 years of experience, my 20 years of experience. I'm very generous with my time and my information and my expertise. But it's like going to a lawyer and saying, hey, can I just pick your brains on this? You No, you're going to get a bill. Yeah, look, it happens all the time. I think I take the initial meeting. I give them, pick, I let them pick my brain. And then for the first meeting, and um, I'm fully transparent. You know, I believe what goes around comes around. So yeah, me too. I'll tell them everything. You know, this is how you do it. 
This is how I did it at Guide Dogs. This is how I did it at Food Bank. This is how I did it at Cancer Camps. This is how I do it. Yeah. This is how you do it. And inevitably, they will not have the capacity or capability to do it. And so the second call, I am a bit more um, yeah. upfront. And I'll say, look, if you need me to put a proposal together, I will. But I'm probably not the best person to help you here. And I think that's a learnt skill over time. Yeah, that definitely comes with time and confidence. Yeah. I would like to go back to the generational, I guess, differences from a donor perspective. You know, talking about the younger generation, how have you had to change your approaches to actually engage with them? Because like I said, you know, our parents were getting things in the letterbox, you know, who hasn't seen a World Vision ad on their TV? You know, that was in our face as children. Our parents all had sponsored children. I don't feel like there are many of people in my network, friends, people my age, that are actually doing something good. Yeah, so the change has definitely been more in advocacy. So silent generation will just give, no matter what. Baby boomer, you need to work a bit harder, a little bit harder. Gen X, Y, whatever Z, you want to call it. Whatever me. you want to call it. <laughs> Anyone else under that? Yeah. You got to work. And so the change has really been about, and I might just take a step back, mm. which is the money in philanthropy is in the 50 pluses. Yeah. Any benchmark you'll see, under 50, there's no point even going there. It's everybody over 50, 60 even, that's where the money is. But the problem is, and I think this is kind of the root of my question, everyone gets to 50. So you need to be on their radar when they're 20 because everyone's, what happens when the 50-year-olds and then 100 and unfortunately pass away? Seldom non-for-profits are investing in the 30 to 50s and building the pipeline. The pipeline. And so, again, I come back to my experience at Guide Dogs. They had a discovery center and the discovery center was an interactive center where you could learn about vision and hearing loss and dog training and everything. And so they worked with the schools and, you know, the public school, private school, Catholic schools, and they invited schools in. And so you had board, our board saying, this is a waste of money. Some some part of board, sorry, not all of them. And then other parts saying, this is a 20-year investment so that when these children become adults and grandparents, Guide dogs is in their homes and their hearts forever. I do feel there's an opportunity really to nurture, not necessarily ask for money. No, no. So it's a different strategy. Nurture them in different ways. Add value to your services, um, which is which is the birth of t- digital two-step, which I think you guys might call lead gen or something. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, when you have to remember the place on each platform. So obviously, you know, on Instagram, you're not you're not selling. On Facebook, you probably can be a little bit more intent-driven, but, you know, social fits in the awareness space. It really does. Yeah, and I, d- I don't know what it's like as much outside a non-for-profit, but Facebook drives, I'd say, 95% of the revenue. And because so that's your perfect, that's your market. Yeah, yeah. I have um, a lot of clients saying, let's try Insta, let's try, try Twitter, let's try YouTube, let's try Spotify ads. I'm more than happy to do that, but at the same point, I don't want to waste anyone's money. And so I think there's this delicate balance of innovation and investment without crippling a budget. Yep. That leads me to my next question, budget. Because again, as you mentioned, these charities don't have hundreds of thousands and millions to really to invest. How do you how do you kind of structure your services in order to actually A, get the best results, but also protect the dollar because they're going to be looking at every cent. 
And they do. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> no doubt. And so do we, you know, and so do we with a European background that I have where, you know. Ah, you're a tight ass. <laughs> uh, that's funny. <laughs> I'd like to think I'm not. Um, but I was definitely grown up as one. Yeah. And as my team tell me, oh, you're a tight ass, Andrew. I say, well, hang on a minute. If you calculate the amount of money I'm spending in both these agencies, I would say that I'm not. But anyway. I think you hit a sore spot there. I know. <laughs> Note yourself, don't call him a tight ass. <laughs> Coming back to the budgets of the non-for-profits, <laughs> it's, just, it's just a little bit of a game. And so, you know, I think we had 20 inquiries this week, right? You ring all 20 and you go, <laughs> you, got, you got to fill the room. Yeah. Tell me how much money you got. Before I go into my spiel and give you a proposal at 100 grand and you've only got 20, I've just wasted my time. Yeah. It's like, just how much money do you have? Be honest, yeah. Be, how much money do you have? And I'll tell you what I can do for and you. And I'll tell you what I can do for you. And I don't want to be as brutal as that, but some clients, and you might get that as, well, tell me how much it's going to cost, and then I'll decide if I can get there. And so you just play a bit of a dance. But That's I, hard, though. Like, how are you supposed to respond to that? Because, like, for me, how long is a piece of string? Yeah, and, and this then comes back to the pick your brain. So in order for me to lay out a budget for a client, I actually need to do some investigation and some strategy and understand a pathway. Mm. I can't give you a proposal based on a one-hour conversation and say, oh, yeah, I think you need to invest $250,000. You know, that's not prudent. So, no. so just watching the cost, I think it comes back to trial. A lot of the time, myself or Marcus will present or some of the team at Donor Republic will present and then clients will say, I want you to go all in on that program. We're going to invest half a million dollars on direct mail. We're going to do quarter of a million dollars on digital. Okay. I'm like, hang on, Facebook can't even take that money for the moment. <laughs> so just pull it back a bit. And so we always orchestrate a six to eight week trial. And then we review the process. And then we either scale up or scale down. I mean, that would be the smart way to do it. Yeah, it's quite prudent, I think. And, you know, I have the credibility, I think, and the luxury to be able to say, I did this for eight years at Guide Dogs. Yeah. And here is the evidence. I wouldn't recommend anything that I haven't done myself. And so that's a really powerful position to be in, I think. How have your, I guess, your clients at Donor Republic changed with, I guess, the focus on digital? Because obviously we know, and I've talked about this with previous guests as well, you know, digital is so measurable. It's that instant gratification. It's that you know where every dollar's going. But as we've discussed, we know that direct mail, we know that email, we know that, you know, letterbox drops or community engagement, they're very critical to the overarching picture. How do you get them to split budget with efforts that don't have that? measurable outcome? Yeah, and, and that's a really relevant question right now. So digital has always been an afterthought. It's like, let's get a direct mail campaign out and then let's tack on three emails at the end. And that's because of silent generation. Baby yeah. boomer generally don't have the email. So that's that's been okay. Yeah. But with the emergence and normalization of um, QR codes, emails everywhere, you know, people are getting used to it in society. So it's moved from an afterthought into integration yeah. into some charities adopting a digital first philosophy. So what does the email appeal at tax or Christmas look like versus the print? And so it's just about understanding where your clients at in their digital journey. Some aren't even capturing data. Oh, that some makes are, me sad. Yeah, it does. So much data. Yeah, and so what is the culture like around data collection and, mm. and data with a purpose, not data for the sake of data? Yeah. Uh, and so within privacy laws, of course. Yeah, but so. I think like you said before about segmenting, when you've got such a broad audience, like you don't, again, you don't even know who's, you might think that, you know, your target donor for guide dogs is females aged 50 to 60 who like puppy. Like you can't, you can't assume that. That's not assumed. 
It could be the big bloke with tats all over him who's a rev head. He loves guide dogs because it was a personal connection for him. You're absolutely right. So that's why getting that data and being able to actually segment effectively, it's it's critical. Yeah, look, segmentation is the forefront and data is the forefront of any marketing. And, I, you know, it baffles me when non-for-profits have, don't understand their segmentation, number one, in terms of recency, frequency, value at a basic level. Mm. But then there's demographic and socio-demographic overlays. And so the best way really to collect data is a survey. I've seen, so most of donor Republic clients will engage in a survey. And there's three core reasons there. Number one is a two-way relationship. You're not the salesman anymore. You're actually asking for people's opinions. And so we've even tested, split tested, we would like to engage with you over and above your financial support and understand what motivates you so we can customize content for you. And we want a two-way relationship. Yeah. So, so we put that in our letters or our emails. I love it. Versus not putting that. And you, you see open rates, response rates, conversion rates are higher because it's authentic and it's real and it's transparent and it's not always right, but that's okay. You're inviting them to give their feedback. Yeah, that's okay. And my old CEO guide dog said, we are not perfect and we shouldn't be. Just be yourself. And we're going to make mistakes and that's okay. So that, that's really liberating. The second thing about a survey is, obviously you collect content to personalize. And we know that personalization has 170% uplift in response rate and revenue generation. So if I say to you, Natalie, thank you so much for supporting guide dogs. I'm going to make this up, by the way, because this isn't how we would do it. But, um, you know, I know you have a connection because your auntie, Andrea, has glaucoma. And by the way, how's your pet, Ringo? Another reason you support guide dogs. We know, it's not like that, by the way, but we know. That I would that, love that. It's, so, Take my money. There's borderline creepy about that. And so it's about understanding what's creepy and what's not. And so you need to have an assessment internally to sense check things and go, okay, is that super creepy or is that okay? Yeah. And so only each culture will know. You know, I don't have the right or wrong there. So that's the second powerful thing of a survey is personalization. The third powerful thing is lead gen. Please tick this box if you would like more information on A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And so a lot of clients say, we don't have any money for a survey. Put a donation form in there and it will be cost neutral. But even if you don't and you invest $10,000, it's going to come back tenfold. And so flipping that to Ecom Nation, I, it just astounds me how many of our clients don't do customer surveys. And then yeah. motivational segmentation. You like dresses, I like jumpers. Stop feeding me content around dresses. I suppose all marketers that are listening and going, yeah, that's because so Because there's so true. much data out there though and it's just not being utilized. And again, I feel like this has come up in quite a few conversations, but your audience are telling you what they want from you. They're literally screaming, begging and pleading when they comment, like, share, save on something saying, this is what I like. So why would you then serve them the opposite? Yeah. And again, you liken it to a marriage. You know, you're not listening out. You're not mm. listening for the cues. What's really actually been quite transformational in non-for-profits, and I, I, I'm keen to get your thoughts, is pearls, personalized URLs. And so traditionally... There might be a database of 10,000 emails. You might email out all those people and they point to one generic landing page. And it might be the homepage of a website. And I have to go and fill in my details to donate. I have to go get my credit card and bounce rates skyrocket. I can imagine. But if, and I'm talking about warm audiences here and retention, not so much cold and acquisition, because yep. you don't really do cold acquisition EDMs in non-for-profit land. They don't work. But so for a warm EDM, I've got your name on my database. I've got your past giving history. I've got your preferences. When you click on that page, it should it's, remember. A, it's a customized Pearl, personalized URL for you. And if you've given us your credit card, we can PCI 
encrypt that compliant and we can store it as a token. And literally, it's a one-click process. Now, that is revolutionizing a lot of the work we're doing in digital land. And so I've been trying to overlay that into Ecom Nation as well. I love that. I love that. And again, yeah, when we talk about LTV again, if you know that every three months you're buying activewear or again, from your past purchase history, why would why would you not make it easy for me? The challenge we have is as agency owners is clients think we're doing the sell. Yeah. And so they're like, hang on, you just want to sell me another product. And then you tell them about this pearl once or you tell them about CRM emails based on giving history once and they're like, not interested, you know, I'll do it myself. And then a year later, they're like, how come you never told me about that? How come that client at that presentation, you're doing that for them and you didn't tell me? If I got a dollar for every single time. (laughs) But it's the nature of the beast by the same token. You know, again, the best advice that I got was our job, particularly as marketing agency directors, is recommend. It's our job to make recommendations. We can make the same one, and I do this now, again, it's a learning, with clients who consistently decline a service that I know will have the desired outcome. I will keep recommending it. Hey, Andy, I know last time we caught up, you said you weren't interested in this, but I think this is a great idea because of X, Y, Z. You can say no, but at least I've made the recommendation. It's in writing. Correct. It's on like a regular whip or something. Yeah. And yes, you feel repetitive, but... Hey, anyone listening? I think marketing is repetitive. We we do feel like we're saying the same things over and over and over again. But you have to remember that particularly when we're talking to other colleagues or if we're talking to clients, they don't understand it as intimately as we do. Well, that's so profound. You know, so um, I think Guide Dogs voted most trusted charity seven years in a row. It was on everything, everything. And people internally would say, if I have to hear this one more time, I'm going to scream. You do a donor survey for donors that have been on the database for 15 years. Did you know we were voted most trusted charity seven years in a row? No. Consistency. <laughs> and it's like, hang on. And so that that's the beauty of brand, key messaging. You know, just when you, and I suppose you've heard this before, just when you're sick of it, maybe you're all into yeah. starting to hear about it. <laughs> so if you're not literally covering your ears and screaming, you haven't said it enough. you failed. <laughs> yeah. Andy, thank you so much for your time. I could, I say this every bloody episode, but I could sit here for hours. I think, you know, the blend of your experience and, you know, the breadth of the work that you're doing is so incredible. It's a challenge, you know, I certainly couldn't do what you're doing, but hey, hats off to you. You've got an incredible team and you should be so proud of what you've achieved. And I really hope that there are some, I think there were some great takeaways, but I really hope that anyone listening has had some great takeaways. In closing, I'd love to ask you, what advice would you give yourself when you moved back to Adelaide that last time? Yeah, so when I moved back to Adelaide in 2009, I really struggled for three years. I just didn't want to be here. I felt I didn't belong, you know, it wasn't for me. I suppose what really helped me was purpose. I I had a mentor at the time say to me, you're not this vibrant person that I knew before you left. What's happening? I just lacked purpose. I didn't know what I wanted. The advice I'd give is understand purpose. What do you want in your life? I see so many people doing the opposite of what they want in life and then they're miserable. And I, you know, I think when we're younger, we probably don't have the foresight to understand that. The other th- profound thing for me is mentor. You know, I've had so many amazing mentors in my life and it's just they've really helped me in different ways. 
And not all mentors are the same. One is more business focused. One is more spiritual focused. One is more family focused. Whatever it is, get mentors because there are people out there that want to help because they see themselves in you. Yeah, totally. So I'd say purpose, understand what you want in life and make sure you create that pathway that goes into that purpose, that vision really. Get yourself people that have done it before. Surround yourself with that. Learn from them. Surround yourself with people that are like you, want to be like you, want to have the same values. If you're going out doing things you shouldn't be doing in life, and Lord knows I've done that, it leads you down a different path. So those are my three takeaways. I love that. Write that down. Andy, thank you so much. As always, please join our Facebook group, DigiTalks. Any questions for myself or Andy? Any ideas for future episodes or dob someone in to be our next guest? I'm getting so many lovely messages and emails on people who would like to be interviewed or suggestions. I'm so here for it. So again, until next time, thank you so much. We'll see you very soon.